0: Hello, and welcome to the Wind Power Podcast. I'm Ian Griggs, Deputy Editor of Wind Power Monthly. Global offshore wind deployment is being carried out in greater volumes and at an increasingly frenetic pace than ever before. But is the industry becoming a safer place to work as it matures? According to my guests, several factors could be working against safety, including a relentless drive to reduce costs, an industry awash with innovation in which change is the only constant, and the structure of contracts in which developers seek to transfer responsibility for risk mitigation further down the supply chain. On the face of it... Data from last month's annual Offshore Wind Safety Report makes for encouraging reading, in that it shows that the number of serious incidents is decreasing, even as the number of hours worked in offshore wind installation rise sharply. But do these figures show us a complete picture, and can the industry learn anything meaningful from them? My two guests today are both experts in the field of safety and efficiency in offshore wind operations. Rakesh Maharaj is the founder of safety and training organisation, AMSA Academy. He has been working in the safety field for nearly three decades and has advised some of the world's leading energy companies in their operations. His focus is to support renewables companies to grow their organisations safely and with resilience. Welcome to the show, Rakesh. Hi Ian, it's a pleasure to be here. Also joining us today is Anna Hilden, Global Industry Manager for Offshore Wind at Geo, a firm which supports renewables companies by providing up to the minute data on climate conditions, meteorological data and forecasts. Anna has more than a decade of industry experience and has been coordinating Storm Geo's offshore wind team since 2008. Welcome Anna. Thank you, Ian. Broadly speaking, do you think the offshore wind industry is becoming safer as it begins to mature? What's your opinion on that, Rakesh?
1: Broadly speaking, yes. I guess the question is, is it beginning to mature? What drives maturity? Well, it requires a degree of stabilisation where people can consolidate, understand, learn from, apply better. But stability is anything that we're seeing in wind with technological advancements, if you look at turbine sizes, civil infrastructure, it's changing constantly. Is the sector stable enough to become safer? I would argue at this point, perhaps not.
0: Interesting, so you're sort of characterizing the wind industry as a sort of turbulent teenager. Anna, what's your view? Do you think offshore wind is becoming safer as it begins to mature? And what's the trend?
2: Yes, I think it is beginning to mature and it's also becoming safer. Uh, Knowledge in the industry is growing. I much agree with Rakesh that the changes that we see all the time pose a charge, but this is such an, a global industry and uh, you see some of the big players in all markets and uh, carrying with their standards and their requirements.
0: Rakesh, if you were to pick one thing, what would be the best way to improve safety in the offshore wind industry?
1: And as much as it is simple in its construction, it's very difficult to answer because the epistemology of safety is being questioned at the moment. What does safety really mean? And if you speak to some quarters, they will argue that safety is the accident and incident rate. But in my world, safety represents something quite different. Safety is an outcome of the things that we do. What is it that we ought to be doing to get safety right? We should always be aiming to establish a dynamic model that helps us achieve the following formula. Getting the right number of people with the right skills, doing the right jobs, with the right tools, at the right place and at the right time.
0: Anna, what would be the top of your list to improve safety in offshore wind?
2: The top is always training. But one step below the top, uh, the technological improvements play a big role. You see new technologies that pose less of a safety risk. The data that guide the people is also important. One of those uh, important sources of data is obviously the weather. So improved weather forecasting is, also means improved safety.
0: What factors do you think most impede attempts to make offshore wind a safer industry?
2: There's always a push to do more in less time, to do things in a less costly way. There's always a finance issue. That's just how it works. But all the mature companies, all the mature projects, uh, they have safety on top of their list.
0: It's interesting that you pick out cost as one of the factors perhaps impeding safety. Rakesh, how far do you think the safety of offshore wind is compromised by the drive to reduce costs?
1: It really depends on whether we're taking a short, medium to long-term view. In the early days, many generators and investors and developers and asset owners were jumping onto the bandwagon to develop and build out assets very, very quickly without a clear strategy. And We saw in the early days that there were development of projects and then the sell-on or flipping of project post-construction, and therefore the asset strategy wasn't very clear right at the very outset. So companies invariably looked at developing at the lowest possible cost point. There are other external mechanisms, however, that's influencing the cost basis of development, and and that in itself has a direct impact on safety. So if you take, for example, the CFD auction schemes, which force developers to really drive down costs on the front end, because there's no certainty or surety of, of being awarded the CFD. The other particular element that we need to consider is hazards, particularly hazards that are inherent within balance of plant, find their way into a project whilst is being put to paper. It is actually at that stage that we begin to establish a risk profile based on assumptions, based on unknowns, based on making design choices that may seem to be cost efficient in the short term, but may end up being expensive in the long term. But the degree to which risk analysis of development is actually undertaken during the development stage is pretty weak. So when a project moves through FID and then into pre-construction, it is at really this point that the inherent hazards and risks built into the initial design begin to manifest. We tend to find that companies then have to rely on people in order to mitigate risks that could have more easily be designed at a development stage if there was more funding resources and skills available to undertake proper design assessments and hazard elimination of mitigation studies. There is another element. If we look into procurement, an interesting factor is emerging that has a direct impact on safety and that is contracting structures. So multi-contract strategies are quite typical within this industry and those multi-contract strategies often tend to drive financial control and reward performance. Now when you have a contracting model that separates cash flow and quality and timeliness from safety, which would only be achieved if people work more collaboratively, you're essentially creating a fragmented contracting structure driven by cost, but not sensitive to safety, which is achieved through collaboration. So yes, cost is impacting safety in different ways.
0: I wonder if you've, whether you could kind of illustrate how that actually manifests itself in the construction of a project.
1: Let's suppose in the development stage, we have decided that we we're going to build a near shore project and the near shore project will need to be supported with crew transfer vessels. And we source crew transfer vessels and we happen to pick the most what we consider to be value adding or cost effective supply of crew transfer vessels. We issue a letter of intent subject to final investment decision being made. We then undertake bathymetric testings of the seafloor, understand wave patterns, weather patterns, et cetera, et cetera. When the vessels become operational, we tend to find that the hull heights of the vessels are not suited for the seafloor. And on many instances, we've seen examples of of them being beached, often with crew on board. So here are examples of how decisions that are made in development stage, which are not subject to proper rigor, then manifesting during the execution of the constructional project.
0: That's really interesting to hear, a real world example Anna, what's your view about how far safety is a hostage to profit?
2: We see a lot of challenges connected with projects that are constructed in areas where there are typhoons. It seems like projects have been laid out along the lines that we are used to from Europe or other calmer places in the world. And then suddenly the people realize that you have conditions here that require actually different logistics strategies, possibly even vessels that have uh, higher tolerances.
0: So basically some in the wind industry are using templates, which are just not applicable, certainly from a weather systems point of view, in the part of the world that they actually want to build this project, right?
2: Yes. And it's interestingly enough, uh, the wind turbines are certified. Out to the last decimal to withstand these conditions. But the logistics strategy is sometimes uh, laid out without really looking at what kind of winds, what kind of waves you can expect in these regions.
0: The devil is really in the detail on that. Offshore wind is often compared from a safety point of view to the oil and gas sector. What could the offshore wind industry learn from the oil and gas sector's safety record? And is that even a valid or a useful comparison, Rakesh?
1: My view is that comparing the two sectors at face value provides very little by way of lessons to be transferred from one to the other. But you do have to look beneath the surface to try and understand what are the macro factors that have driven safety within oil and gas and try and understand how we might replicate the behaviors within wind. One very practical example of that would be the permitting regulations for offshore oil and gas exploration production plants. Now, in fact, in all European countries, regulators require a safety case to be produced for oil and gas. and. The real reason behind the safety case, apart from demonstrating how you intend to produce safely without putting people at risk, is actually to nullify the effect of contractual responsibilities and risk transfer. In a typical contracting environment, as we have in WIND, you've got the overarching risk transfer mindset of the developer wanting to push risk down to the Tier 1s, and then almost silent infighting between the Tier 1s to or retain the risks that they're to retain and pass whatever else they can further down the chain. It is as a result of these risk transfer behaviors that we often tend to find the issues of occupational and operational hazards and risks not being identified, and if they are, the right businesses not wanting to take the ownership to mitigate them. The lesson for the industry is how do we square the circle of risk transfer versus responsible risk sharing within a heavily contracted environment?
0: When you call it risk transfer, in my mind, the phrase buck passing comes to mind. Is that a bit of a harsh way of me reinterpreting it?
1: I would argue that it's harsh. The UK has been the leader in safety regulation for a number of years. In fact, since the robens Act in 1974, which we call the Health and Safety at Work Act, which the European Parliament then adopted um, in 89 as a reference point. Now there is a fundamental difference between the Health and Safety at Work Act that we have here in the UK and the way that's been interpreted for other European countries. Section three in the Health and Safety at Work Act essentially places obligations on an employer for non-employees equal to that of their own employees. An employer carries the same obligations to that third party as they would to their direct employees. And the penalties for not doing so would be just as harsh. But that is not the case in Europe. Now, Rakesh, in the comment piece
0: that you wrote for us very recently, you framed the idea of safety in the offshore industry as a question of whether the sector's existing organisational capacity and capability is equal to or can meet growing operational demand, or whether there's an imbalance there. So are you saying, is this simply a question of having enough qualified people to deploy on a project, or are there other factors to consider?
1: My definition of safety is actually much wider than that. Organizational capability and, and capacity being key to delivering the operational demand. And if you've got a difference between the two, do you have a problem in terms of risk mitigation. So what is organizational capacity and capability? I mean, the one thing that the sector, particularly in construction projects, do very well, is, and that's just throw people at the problem. Throwing people at the problem and training them doesn't necessarily help them solve a problem that exists from the complex organization that they belong to, the complex project that they're putting together, the complex strategy from a contracting standpoint, and the complex assets that they have to create. So how do we equip people to operate in an organizational environment that is constantly changing? That means thinking about how decision-making is undertaken, how responsibilities are delegated It also has to do with the ability of the organization to collaborate properly. Does their R&D think about life cycle consequences? But the one other factor is the ability to be psychologically safe. If people do not feel comfortable in a given situation, for them to be able to speak up without fear of vindication.
0: So it's the ability to say, this isn't safe. I don't think this is right. you know, this may cost us more to deal with this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Really, it's about equipping
1: people to articulate what are the consequences in material terms of deciding not to do the job. If I decided to rush this job today, it would mean that I would have to redo it in a month's time or the weather window was beginning to close in on me. So therefore I decided not to pursue this today, but instead put it into next week's schedule. It's about having those very critical material conversations and the confidence to have it, not just assigning something to safety, because that in itself is not compelling.
0: Anna, what are the specific safety challenges posed by extreme weather? You you mentioned typhoons uh, earlier, but lightning and excessive wave heights. What are those safety challenges to the offshore wind industry? How numerous are they? And how should they be mitigated in your view?
2: They don't even need to be extreme to pose uh, challenges. Offshore wind is an industry that works with very low thresholds. It's not like an oil and gas platform in the middle of the North Sea that doesn't care unless the waves are 10, 12 metres of height. It's an industry where you need very low wave heights, uh, low winds in order to operate. Another aspect is, of course, that offshore wind is so repetitive. If you install a turbine, you need to do that 100 times. If you maintain it, it's even more repetitive. You need to do it every year for 25 years. You need to have routines that, that work every time. And it also means that improvements to methods, to strategy, to vessels, they can add to safety during the project. So that means that you have... The advantage and environment, with which in itself encourages learning. That's an important difference to oil and gas, where you have it's, it's actually seldom that you get real weather changes. In offshore wind, you simply have to plan all the time according to the weather conditions because you need to work all the time. You need to do these things, and you have equipment that's not that heavy.
0: Tell us a little bit more about those low thresholds. In terms of wave heights, etc., where are we getting to sort of a yellow and a red zone, uh, for instance, where we need to sort of cancel that day's work and say, let's return to shore?
2: In the early projects where we had turbines pretty close to shore uh, at uh, not too high depths, not too far to travel from the ports, crew transfer vessels were used almost exclusively. Uh, the smaller crew transfer vessels had to push Towards the ladder of the turbine, the technician was supposed to jump from the vessel onto the ladder or conversely. Sounds terrifying. And that is no fun. <laughs> you need very low wave heights in order to do this in a safe manner. Wave heights below at least 1.5 meters, maybe even lower. We still have plenty of pro- projects where things are going on in that way. One good thing is that the projects now that are now be- being built are further from shore at higher wave heights with longer transfer times to shore. We see that these projects are being built using SOVs, service operation vessels, rather than the small CTVs. The SOVs are large vessels. You have gangway systems that mean that the people can actually walk from the vessel to the turbine.
0: That sounds infinitely preferable to me.
2: Yes. (laughs) Uh, The drawback is, of course, the cost. It's cheaper to operate CTVs. It's a flexible system, and you can always uh, hire in a new CTV if one uh, is out of order. It's a more costly way of operating. But further offshore and with larger turbines, it pays off, not only in um, reduced traffic back and forth, but in higher uptime.
0: Back to cost versus profit again. How does the safety of offshore wind, Anna, impact The image of the industry, particularly for those thinking of coming in from other sectors or indeed for young people, considering it as a career path.
2: I think that all heavy industry needs to brand itself as a safe environment to work in. I think offshore wind can do that pretty confidently.
0: Rakesh, what's your view on the reputational effect uh, of safety on the offshore wind industry? Does offshore wind have an image problem?
1: I think the excitement, the exhilaration, the novelty, the ability to be involved in something that is going to positively change our future are far more attractive for the younger generation today than perhaps its safety record. I do think, however, that the safety record of the industry is something that does need to be taken on board more seriously, particularly from an investor perspective. There are some investors such as the World Bank who have set a really good example for the industry by establishing safety performance provisos in their funding agreements. I do believe that the private investment community can learn something from it. I mean, I do believe that it wouldn't take too much to completely obliterate the uh, reputation of the sector. All it would take is a few fatalities involving young workers. We're on a winning streak so far. Let's keep it that way.
0: We're going to talk a little bit now about the latest annual offshore wind safety report. It's produced by the Energy Institute's G Plus Group of offshore wind developers and suppliers, whose members include Siemens Gamesa, Orsted, and RWE, among others. And they produce this report once a year. I want to start off by asking you, do you think the latest report gives us a complete picture of the current level of safety in the industry, Anna?
2: It's not a complete picture. At the surface, on the general numbers, to really use it for improving safety, you need to dig deeper. For instance, it says that lifting is the type of operation that gives rise to the highest number of of incidents, but it doesn't say, why is this? Is it lifting up blades that are not under control? What is it? In fact, with the lifting, that's problematic. You have to dig deeper. It gives a nice overview uh, and it shows that the industry is on the right track. A complete picture? No, definitely it not. It
0: sounds to me from what you described, it's infinitely more terrifying trying to get from a crew transfer vessel onto an offshore wind platform than a lifting operation. It's, that sounds like there's it's considerably more risk involved in that process, perhaps.
2: Yes, I would say so. And also because it's a day-to-day thing.
0: Rakesh, can you tell us what you think about the completeness of the picture that this report gives us on safety in the wind industry?
1: If the purpose of the report is to monitor outcomes and report to the world how outcomes are being controlled, then I think it's really doing its job. And it's it's very complete because it is talking about where are the areas that need focus, the reduction in incident, accident, frequency rates, and it's being very objective with regards to accepting the areas that need to be improved. But on the other hand, if you are looking at the report from the perspective of an organization, asking yourself, what do I need to do as a business to do better, then I don't think it's going to meet that expectation, largely because of what it does is it provides output data, not input data. Tells what's happened, it doesn't tell us why it's happened. If you can solve a a safety problem through technology, then by all means, that's really what we should be seeking to do. But until we get to that stage, organizations do have to take a proactive approach to reducing risk. But what the report falls short on is helping organizations understand what they really ought to be doing. The reporting to G-plus is on a fairly confidential basis. So nobody, including regulators, has an understanding of who submitted what report. So therefore... We don't necessarily understand the context of those events taking place. And if we don't understand the context, then we wouldn't necessarily understand whether there may be a lesson in it for us.
0: The G Plus report does not include any data from China, one of the global leaders in offshore wind installation. And it's limited in its geographical scope to Europe, the US, South Korea and Taiwan. How does that affect our understanding of the safety record of the entire offshore wind industry, Anna?
2: I see your point, but if you look at the offshore wind industry in China, it is quite self-reliant. It's Chinese developers using Chinese contractors, Chinese turbines to a large extent its own ecosystem. So that means a report containing both data from China and the rest of the world and calculating everything together might actually be telling less than uh, what we are looking at here.
0: I appreciate your point that China is effectively its own ecosystem. But there doesn't appear to be at least a publicly available version of a report which pertains specifically to China. Rakesh, do you think that's a piece of the puzzle that we're just completely missing?
1: I really agree with Anna's point in that you have a self-sustaining ecosystem And how applicable is it to an ecosystem that's effectively comprises a multitude of cultures, nationalities, et cetera, et cetera, from around the world? You merge all of that data together, you you even have a a less of a granular understanding of why the sector is is performing in the way that it is. As to whether China actually reports on its uh, accidents and incidents, I'm not sure whether it does or it doesn't. But do I think that it would make a difference to our understanding of the market if both sets of data were available? I would think absolutely. I work with organizations in Asia. And we have this rather interesting approach throughout the rest of the world, particularly born out of out of Western Europe. And that is, um, you know, hazard observations are considered to be very positive indicator. So the more hazards we observe, the quicker we can respond to them, which means that people are not injured. But what that requires is for people to speak up.
2: It's not that I find this irrelevant at all. It's just that for the rest of the world to learn from it, There needs to be an openness on both sides.
1: It is openness from a reporting perspective, yes. Do we have visibility of how China's performing from a safety standpoint? But there is also the openness from the individual perspective. Because here in Europe, we have something called low power distance we don't necessarily require hierarchy within our cultures in in order to exist whereas other cultures around the world particularly those in southeast asia are very hierarchical and that is their social norm standing up and voicing your concern they consider not to be respectful of their seniors or superiors as a result of that they wouldn't necessarily for cultural reasons bring it to the attention of others. So therefore our hazard reporting is probably going to be quite low. Now, if we did have a comparable report, we'll be able to delve into the differences in cultures and actually equip European companies who are growing in that part of the world to understand how to grow within a low power distance context. At the moment, we have Western safety professionals landing on shore, having contractor meetings and saying to all the contractors, hazard reporting is incredibly important not necessarily realizing that there is a fundamental incompatibility with local social culture.
0: We're imposing Western cultural norms and assuming that those are going to be followed elsewhere, right? So from what is measured in the report, we see that the number of working hours in offshore wind has risen by nearly 40% on the previous year, but that the total recordable injury rate and lost time injury frequency were both down. Should we be encouraged by this, Anna?
2: Yes, on the face of it. But still, it is very, very low numbers. It could be a little blurb. We'll have to see a clear trend. This is a very quickly developing industry. There are newcomers to the industry every day. There are new technologies, new markets, new cultures. And the next years, we will see a lot more in Asia. We'll see more in the US. What will that mean? We don't know.
0: Rakesh, on the flip side, injuries which required medical assistance and so-called near misses rose in the last 12 months. What can we infer from that?
1: The area in the report that I'm particularly concerned about is the 10% increase in high potential events. And high potential events means that if the hazard manifested, then there would be a significant or serious consequence, i.e. a disabling injury or a fatality. When we look at how the high potential events are categorized, we can see that they are split into kind of nacelle-orientated events and vessel-orientated events. If we look retrospectively at the data, we can see that the number of high potential events associated with routine operations is on the decrease. So we've got routine maintenance creating a high potential event. What does that tell us about the stability within the industry of routine operations. It tells us that we haven't been able to de-risk routine operations sufficiently. Then what about breakdowns? If we haven't been able to de-risk routine operations, if we're undertaking breakdowns, which often tend to require more specialists, more experts, greater degree of collaboration, but if you've got a breakdown, you also need to get out to site as quickly as possible to reduce lost production, you've got to fundamentally juxtaposed set of conditions that's where the concern lies so what it's actually telling us is that asset designers are designing assets very very quickly without paying attention to its life cycle needs i.e planned operations and unplanned operations and equipping teams then adequately to conduct routine operations in a manner that is sufficiently risk controlled that's really interesting. Anna, what's your take on that?
2: Yes, although I still think that these numbers are very low. So if you were a statistician doing an analysis of uh, what kind of inferences you can safely make from these numbers, it would not be that clear.
0: Well, that brings me to the end of my questions. Rakesh and Anna, thank you both very much indeed for joining us on the Wind Power podcast to talk about safety in offshore wind. Thank you very much for the
1: invitation. It's been incredibly exciting, and
2: Thanks also from me. It's been interesting.
1: Thanks for listening to the Wind Power podcast.
0: We'll be back soon with another episode to explore the issues which are driving the wind industry. In the meantime, for the latest news, expert opinion and analysis, visit windpowermonthly.co.uk for daily updates or to sign up for one of our specialist bulletins delivered straight to your inbox.